It's also Mother's Day, and I was, I was uh, <clears throat> yeah, um, telling secrets. Uh, when, my, when, I, when, when Tamara, I can't, I can't spit this out because I'm like trying to decide whether I should say it. When Tamara was talking to my mom when we were engaged, my mom said to her, don't ever expect a, a, an anniversary card, ever, because my son is not sentimental. He doesn't have a sentimental bone in his body. And so, uh, so it's Mother's Day. And I'm terrified because here I am like, this is a really big deal. It's Mother's Day and, and, and I'm just the wrong guy to be standing on stage trying to figure out Mother's Day. So I called all the, the female mentors in my life yesterday and I'm like, what, what am I supposed to do? It's Mother's Day. Like, and, and so it's kind of cool interacting with some of the, the women in this church, uh, godly women in this church. And, and it was, made it kind of fun for me because what began to emerge was just simply this, that I think the longer, the older, the older we live and I think the more we try to disciple people, the more we realize that the real hard work is done in the home with the family. That once you hit a certain age, very few people really significantly change or change is a lot harder. And who you are shaped to become in the crucible of kind of the home with the parents uh, and the time spent and the culture that's created there and the values that are instilled really is the foundation for the rest of your life. And so we try to do discipleship as a church, as pastors, uh, and what we begin to realize is um, it's hard if, if, not, if a whole lot hasn't already been done or taken place kind of in the family context. And so this, this is the day that we take and we honor one half of that and we look at moms and we basically say, motherhood is an amazing thing. It's a, it's a call to suffer in some sense because it's a daily pouring out of your life. It, it is discipleship like Paul talked about. Daily I'm poured out like a drink offering. My energy, my life, my vitality is poured out. And that's kind of my, my offering to you, God. You know, it's a, a drink offering. It's, it's how I'm glorifying you, God, as my energy is being poured out. And I watch Tamara, and I think back to my mom uh, with me. And motherhood is an amazing thing where, uh, through the love of a mom, daily all of life is poured out for the benefit of somebody else. It's, it's the best picture ever of launching somebody, serving somebody else that they may live, and in the process, you, you slowly die. Um, doesn't sound um, like you want to sign up for motherhood right now, but... For moms, it's an amazing testimony uh, to the love that's there, to the sacrifice that's there, to the, this kind of institution called motherhood. And, you know, not to pick on fathers, but you never really hear things, you know, like, uh, you know, Father Earth or, you know, stuff like that. It's like whenever we're talking about nurturing, it's the, I told you, I'm not the guy to be saying this stuff, but it... Uh, it's kind of cool to step back and reflect that this is kind of God's plan and it's been there since the beginning. So mothers, um, the little kid with his arms out that couldn't find the words about what he likes about his mom and then said everything, he, he said it best. So uh, happy Mother's Day. And you're like, what was that? But that, there you go. And, uh, and thank you. <laughs> And I could talk theology and never sweat. You get me trying to be sentimental, and, and there's problems. Um, 
If you'd turn to Revelation with me, we're going we're gonna to kind of do a version of a sermonette today. And we're kind of picking up the next letter in this series we're doing. So if you, if you don't know, the book of Revelation is the last book in the New Testament. And in it, you see Jesus prophetically speaking to seven representative churches in Asia Minor. And these are literal congregations. And Jesus is going to speak prophetically to them, both the things they're doing well, the things they're not doing well. And you get this unbelievable look at, in some sense, how, uh, how Christ views things. I mean, you get to see through his eyes. And there's a, a word called expository. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a firm believer that whenever you say one way is the only way, that that, that leads to problems pretty quick. But in, in churches, there's two different theories on preaching, if you don't know. One of them would be what's called topical, and it's basically we're going to take a topic and we're going to see what the Bible says about that topic. And so we'll go to a couple different places and we'll get some light shed on that topic as we kind of expound on it. Uh, and... Frankly, that's kind of how Paul talked. Jesus talked that way. Uh, it's, it's relevant, you know, kind of immediate relevance. But the problem in the last 20 to 30 years is that everything went topical. And what you lose is a sense of Scripture speaking for itself. In other words, the continuity of moving through a, a piece of Scripture or Scriptures and having to deal with things that otherwise you might not choose to deal with. When you're kind of working through sequentially, you hit a subject and, you, you know, whether you like that topic or not, you find yourself having to talk about it. The, the view of moving through a, a book of Scripture or a passage of Scripture sequentially is called expository preaching. And so, like I said, I, I land between the two and say, you know, to say one is the right way scares me. But I think there's a balance of trying to find times where we're doing series uh, where we're moving through a book. We spent a whole year plus in the book of John going sequentially through it. Um, but we've been doing a lot of topical lately. And so one of the reasons we're in Revelation now was the desire to get back into an expository series. Okay. So with that as the backdrop, we get to this church that nobody in the Christian world has heard of. I doubt that this is any, uh, that it, you know, if you've grown up in the church or you've been around, I doubt anyone took you to this passage and said, let's talk about the church at Thyatira. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not, it's not the place you land. And so there's something interesting when we land here because I feel like today, as we kind of talk briefly, it's going to be about a subject that on one hand is incredibly central and, and commonsensical, but on the other hand is something that I think we've gotten out of the habit of talking about. And it's morality, sin, uh, and and how that plays into things. And somehow in the, the 70s, in the whole kind of uh, the power of positive thinking movement hit America, there was a real trend in churches to downplay sin. You know, and so it's like, let's not talk about it. Let's not say the word. Let's just give everybody the self-help things to grow into a wonderful life. But let's not really harp on sin and, I mean, I literally have been to churches and have heard of churches where you'll never hear the word sin. They, they purposely try to filter that out. And I think unthinkingly, there's those churches on the extreme that try to filter it out for whatever reason. That's on the extreme. But I think 
there's a lot of churches that just because we're Americans and we're always looking ahead and we're always whatever happened yesterday whatever got messed up yesterday we're always just off to the races with what's next uh, and we want things to grow and become better we we tend to um, not talk about sin I think as much as maybe the church used to I think the other reason for this is if you're my generation you grew up or you were exposed to a church that did harp on morality a lot. And because of that, my generation, myself included, there was a backlash against that because we, we didn't like the fact that everything was being reduced down to moralistic terms, black and white, and it was really um, life-negating. Every, everything was duty, everything was heavy. And we began to ask, so the generation right below me, it's called the social justice generation, uh, we began to say, is it really just all about morality or what about the world out here? What about doctors helping uh, people that can't help themselves? What about women in the church going and giving haircuts for Alzheimer's patients? And what about serving other people? What about justice? And so we began to say this whole reduction of everything to moralistic terms, it, you know, the, the, the moral majority kind of tone, we react to that and then we go looking for there's got to be more there's more to the good news than just that the problem is uh, in all of this whether it's the self-help thing whether it's reacting the moral majority whether whatever it is my generation and the generation below has so swept morality aside that it's not even the conversation anymore and so I think that what we hit today um, is incredibly relevant and so we're going to just try and focus in on this one aspect of this letter to this church uh, and see what it can maybe teach us this morning. So if you'll read with me, it's in Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. It says this, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now, the, the god of Thyatira was uh, Apollos, and Apollos was represented with, with kind of flames coming out of him and bronze feet, and so, and he was the son of Zeus in the pagan world, the hierarchy of things. So you see, again, this formula where Jesus is in, in different ways grabbing a city and right at the beginning saying, I am in authority. I am was, was always the name of God, and you really see it wasn't just a, a funny little phrase or, or something like that. It was, it was always the ground of authority, the centrality, the bigness, the holiness, uh, the glory of God. I am. And you see Jesus all throughout the book of John bringing himself into that. I am. Uh, the way, the truth, and life. I am uh, the vine, you are the branches. And he would always talk about uh, this idea of authority. And here he comes and says, um, Zeus is not the Son of God. Uh, I am the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Uh, I'm in authority. Pay attention to what I have to say. You ever been in a classroom where everyone's kind of um, taking the substitute teacher for granted? You know, and you kind of just begin to tune her out, and then you begin to get a little bit of confidence, and you start openly talking over the top of the substitute teacher, and you're like, hey, this is kind of fun. Like, she can't really say anything. Or, 
And then all of a sudden the principal walks in or something like that. And, and there's this moment of, oh, okay, authority just walked into the room and it changes everything and you listen at a different level than you would have listened before. And Jesus is trying to say, listen now. If you're in the church, Thyatira, if you're in that city, listen now. I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Uh, your spirituality, your love for me, it's good and it's growing, which is a really good affirmation for a church. Nevertheless, and if you go back to verse 14, you see the same pattern with the church at Pergamum that he says, I know your deeds, and he affirms them, but verse 14, you see this phrase, nevertheless, uh, here in verse 20, the same thing, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her onto a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, only hold, on to what I have, uh, only hold on to what you have until I come. And to him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter and he will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will give to him, uh, I will give him the morning star. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So you see this fascinating thing. Now, Thyatira is not a, a huge city. It's not one of the cities, if you go there now, that's excavated with, with you know, where you can see the theater and, and all sorts of ancient temples and structures. There's mounds or tells or, or whatever where if you really dug underneath them, you'd find some ruins. But it was, it was less of a significant city. It was more of a tradesman city. And in those days, uh, when you're... Uh, kind of in a city like this, pagan city like this, with a lot of trades, there was a lot of trade guilds. And so uh, kind of a guild that you would have had to have been a part of for economic or social success, uh, a group or whatnot that you would have kind of been initiated into. And there would have been norms or practices as part of these guilds that would have been commonplace, that you would have been expected to kind of be a part of. And and there was feasts, and there was rituals, and there was ceremonies. And a lot of it would carry into eating food sacrificed to idols, uh, or drunken orgies, or uh, immorality. And so what you find is something not too different from being in a secular culture like America. That you're in a city where you're a Christian, but to do business and to do life with the rest of the city takes you into this awkward place of saying, to what degree am I going to harmonize with the culture around me? To what degree am I going to engage in uh, the same things that are going on with others around me? Or to what degree do I have to draw distinctions and separate myself out? And it's a really kind of fascinating question that way. Um, how do I get on in the world yet still maintain my distinctive as not being from the world? 
And so what we see is this woman, Jezebel, it's not a real name. It's a symbolic name pointing to the Old Testament. Uh, this woman who's basically taking God's people and leading them astray. And so she's a prophetess. So it's someone who's claiming to be spiritual without the church or, say, the leaders of the church uh, blessing or endorsing her ministry. She's, she's kind of outside and she's a prophetess, and they're tolerating her in the sense that there's not a, a clear distinction, um, but in being close enough to the people in that church, this woman uh, is taking people and leading them astray. And so what Jesus is saying is, hey, you're doing good, all these things are wonderful, but you're tolerating this woman, and by this woman being there, she's actually leading people astray, and what she's leading them into is kind of harmonizing with the pagan culture around, such that people, instead of being holy or pure or set aside for me, learning what obedience is or morality or justice, they're basically looking like the rest of the world around them, and that's just not okay. It's not okay. And I've given her a period of time, and I've kind of done all this, and I'm going to come, and like we learned with the church at Pergamum, I'm going to come, and I'm going to have to deal with that because I don't allow that to continue. And so the real focal point of this, different than the last letter, which was really about... Um, I won't go into that one, but, but the, the point of this one is really about the immorality that's coming from this woman as, as the middleman, middle woman, middle woman. Is that, that's not even a phrase. But, but in that position, she's now brokering people entering into sin. And so you kind of really reduce it down, and here's the thing I want to try to say today is, when we deal with the subject of sin, which is disobedience, which is wrongdoing, which is a form of evil or self-centeredness or wickedness, a form of immorality or injustice, that when we deal with sin, we find that behind most sin, there's usually somebody giving permission. If there's anything you hear this morning, it's this. Sin usually comes with somebody giving license to it. It started in the beginning with the book of Genesis with Eve saying, it wasn't me, it was, it was Satan, and he, he told me this, this, and this, which, which gave me license to do what I did. And, and Adam's like, well, you gave me the wife, and, you know, um, and you taught me from day one, God, that, uh, you know, if, if the wife ain't happy, nobody's happy. And so I always have to acquiesce and do whatever she wants, keep her happy. And, and so I did what she was doing and see, it's your fault, God, because of this woman. And, but there's always somebody who's giving license or permission for sin and when we get caught in sin, our mind immediately goes to, I'm not responsible. Somebody else is responsible. The reason we can so quickly go to laying blame or, or putting the fault on somebody else is because we kind of know where the permission is coming from. Does that make sense? And permission can be a person. 
It can be a religious leader. It can be a mentor. It can be a good friend. It can be just culture at large. Listen, I'm a tradesperson. I got to provide for my family. I'm in a guild. This is just what you do. So what, what's giving license to my sinfulness is simply saying the world or culture requires this and permits it and expects it, and therefore I, I don't have any choice um, or it makes it okay, certainly makes it okay, so I'm going to enter in and be a part of what that lifestyle would look like. But behind every sin is license, someone giving permission for it. And we see in this church this kind of going on and God saying, don't you get it when you've got somebody over here that's making it okay and, and, and wrapping that in spiritual language so that people are being led astray, that you're giving kind of tacit approval as a church or as leaders, you're giving kind of tacit approval for that to happen and for people to fall into immorality, into ungodliness, into disobedience. And, and Jesus is saying, see, it's cool that a lot of you are growing and it's getting better and better, but it's almost like I can't even talk about that for very long because this is going on and it's not okay. And so to be a part of a generation and to interact with people that are part of a generation that, that as a whole, and there's studies like crazy right now about this, that as a whole has kind of lost a sense of that values matter, that morality matters, that holiness matters. And we've found all sorts of different excuses or ways to get tangled up in things. This passage, I might not have picked it, but just feels incredibly urgent if we're going to understand what it means to be called out, to be Christians, to live uh, lives of worship that glorify God and not fall into sin and, and kind of go in the way of the world. Does that make sense? So let me just take it down one more notch. What is really going on when we sin? What is, what is really, what is the motive that's going on when we sin? What happens when we're presented with temptation? Now, there's sins of ignorance. In the Old Testament, means you, you messed up, but you didn't really know it. You know, and we all get that, right? Um, that's why husbands can always say they're sorry to their wives. It's because we know, like, half the time, you guys know where I'm going with this. You know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, yeah, you said I did something wrong. I'm sorry. No idea what it is. And next time I won't either, but I'll say I'm sorry then. It's like a sense of ignorance, right? I'm not talking about those right now. I'm talking about willful transgressions going against your conscience, going against what the Holy Spirit kind of is saying to you, like deep inside the core of who you are, uh, willful disobedience to God's law. What drives that? And what drives that is, is this. It's one, a wrong, a wrong idea of what sin will get you as well as a wrong idea of why o obedience matters or why God commands things of us. 
on this side, it's a wrong idea of what sin will get us. And it's the whole idea that sin always promises so much but delivers so little. That most pleasures are, are kind of ill-gotten pleasures that you get really excited, you run into them, and there's some kind of a physical pleasure or something, but then you get, you kind of reap the whirlwind on the back end of it, and you're like, man, this doesn't really pay out. It's like eating cotton candy. It's wonderful. And then like a half hour later, an hour later, you're sick to your stomach. And sin promises so much up front, yet delivers so little on the back end. And so God says, don't envy the wicked. In the book of Proverbs, you see all sorts of things like this. Don't envy the wicked because if you begin to envy them, you put them on a pedestal and it's like, man, if I could just do what they do, if I could just have what they have, if I could just live like they lived, man, life would be so full. Life would be so rich. I'd be so happy. And, and what's crazy is we see that message in our culture so much that to really be happy, you've got to throw off kind of all, all morality and all standards and just live um, like a two-year-old would and just gratify any desire you have whenever you have it and this is what's going to make you happy and then you look on the back end and you go well how come all the studies show that we're not happy and that we're actually depressed and that we're actually incredibly insecure and that we're actually without any kind of a foundation to to ourselves and, and confidence that way and and you begin to realize that if you put these two together it's exactly what the bible says that the wicked on the front end live um, as if they're gods. And there's a freedom to that. There's a power to that. There's a, I'm going to take it and have it now to that. But that it cannot make you happy in the long run. The word joy is a lot like the ancient word happiness, not the, the kind of recent version of happiness. But happiness was always a state of being. We take the word joy to kind of mean that, a state of being. It's not I do this thing and it gives me like joy for the next five minutes. It's, it's like, no, joy is more like a seasonal thing or a lifelong thing. It's this idea of living in a state of being that's full and that's rich and you're satisfied. And so what we begin to realize is sin over here doesn't pass the test of bringing about the kind of life of significance and satisfaction that we really want when we're, when we're biting the fruit up front. And then we come over here and we go... Uh, and, I, you know, I heard someone say it in a really interesting way last night. Uh, but God's commands, this person said, you know, I used to think that God just wanted to take away my lipstick, you know, and, and make me miserable. You know, back in my teenage years when I was growing up in the church, uh, I wanted to be a girl and I wanted to have a life and not be a nun and, you know, all this other stuff. And I began to see God as the person who wanted to take away my lipstick, I thought that was a powerful phrase, you know, but we come to God's commands with this sense of um, heaviness, like God wants to take away our lip, that sounds weird for God, you know, wants to take away the things that would make life um, meaningful, and that couldn't be further from the truth, and I've said it a lot of times that in the, in the scriptures, obedience is always a means to an end, it's not some heavy-handed rule that you put over the top of thing, and it's just so that you're miserable. Jesus says, obey my commands that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. That commands and rules are a lot like road signs on the road. That yield sign isn't put there to tyrannize you. It's put there to keep you from being T-boned in the intersection. 
And what we begin to realize is God's commands, far from being this heavy, oppressive thing, are the things that give us life and give us freedom and give us joy. And so we see, we kind of miss this, and we misdiagnose this, and we're in the middle. And so what needs to happen? Well, what we find is this, that always in life, there there are either people that you can listen to, that would remind you and help you understand the nature and the purposes of God's commands more. Mentors, um, church, parents, uh, godly friends. Or there are people in your life that if you listen to their voices, they will make you think what you need is ill-gotten pleasure and that somehow that's going to satisfy. And subtly in that, they will give you all that you need by way of permission. By way of permission. I've, I've never really run across somebody who's walking down this road and just flat out says, there's nothing wrong with it. You, you really confront someone that's a friend and they're willing to be honest with you and they're walking down this road. They don't go, there's nothing wrong with this road. They immediately get this look on this face showing that they kind of have the, the law of God written on their heart, this idea of morality and what should be, what ought to be a conscience. But what they'll really subtly do is not try to defend that this is just right. They'll try to defend their, the rationale for going down this road. They'll try and bring in the permission and the license that somebody gave them as they, as they began to go down this road. So when we come to this, we realize It's incredibly important for parents and for churches and as Christians to think about who is in the the middleman position between us and holiness, uh, us and godliness, or us and sin and immorality. And how do we weed out these voices and push them out of our lives? And how do we listen and bring more of these voices into our life? The other thing about immorality that's crazy is you make a wrong turn on, on life and we always think this, this, the idea is that we have a lot of time. I'll try this and if it doesn't work, I'll just backtrack. And the crazy thing about time is it doesn't speed up and it doesn't slow down. It just ticks off and, and it just keeps right on going. So we were driving uh, through San Francisco or on the edges of San Francisco one time and Tamara and I have a different philosophy on, on Google Maps. Um, she always uses the list of directions because she likes the specific turn here, turn there. Um, I like the big picture map. I like seeing the little dot blinking and, and then, you know what I'm saying? And, and that, that really has neither here nor there. I just think I was needing to say that. Um, but... Somehow we're on this freeway, it's rush hour, we're outside of San Francisco, and um, I don't know what's going on because I haven't been able to see the map because she's got the list going, and uh, I'm in the wrong lane and, and, you know, how it goes and things are moving real fast and all of a sudden it's like, is this the right turn or not, right turn or not, and then all of a sudden it's like, I stayed on the freeway but it was the turn. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Of course it was her fault. Um, Every, I said, I said it that way because you know I'm joking because every husband immediately thinks if they make a wrong turn, it's their wife's fault. Um, and it's probably not. 
but it, it keeps our manhood intact. Um, I was a little bit frustrated in the moment we missed the turn. An hour later, when we're in, in traffic, still trying to get back to where we would have been, because you missed that turn, all of a sudden you're on this bridge going across to San Francisco. You know what I'm saying? And I'm like, I'm like that, like that split second of a moment made all the difference. I mean, hour of, of trying to backtrack back to where we were. That's, that's sin. There is no, let me just sample it, and, and then, you know, I'll just, if I find it's no good, I'll just try something different. If you make a wrong turn in life like that, you cut off all the possibilities that could have been or would have been, and you go down a different branch And to get back might be an incredibly long journey and you might miss out. That's why God pleads with you to trust him and and to realize that he does care about your best and uh, working with you for his will in your life and that don't make these wrong turns. And what begins to happen is when we make those wrong turns and we realize how far off track we are, sin as a category is a lot like lying And you know what the knock on lying is, right? Is that you always try to lie your way out of a lie? That lying puts you in a place that you can't really get out of, so you're like, how do I get back? And you start trying to lie your way back into something or or to cover it or to keep it going. And what begins to happen with sin or immorality or, you know, this whole idea of indulging the self at the expense of God's commands is we, we, we begin to try to sin our way out of sin. And we go further, and we go further, and we go further. And then what we begin to realize is we can compartmentalize our lives, and we'll end on this. We can compartmentalize our lives really well. And sin and religion can live together. You can come to church. You can serve in this church. You can carry around a Bible. You can be very religious and be steeped in sin. You can be a prophetess. You can be whatever. You can, sin and religion can coexist. Sin and a relationship with Christ can't. And so in Romans, we see God say, I prick your conscience when you're, when you're beginning to sin. And, and I try and I try and I try. But if you keep blowing through the barriers... Eventually, I stand back and I give, you, I give you over to yourself. And what we begin to realize is this kind of American compartmentalized way of trying to have our faith or spirituality or religion as well as uh, run with our friends and live the way they would live um, because we want to hedge our bets and we want the best of both worlds. We can do that. We can compartmentalize sin and religion. We can't compartmentalize uh, we can't live with both sin and a relationship with God or Christ together in harmony. One, one has to go. Either the relationship with God goes or the sin has to go. So here's a G.K. Chesterton quote, and he says something fascinating. He says, when people cease to believe in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. And the culture around us, like the pagan culture in Asia Minor that Jesus was talking to, believes in anything and everything. There's a lot of permission there if we want to listen to it. And so 
I had written it in the, the, uh, the early pages of my Bible, and it's something that's kind of been a tradition for over 100 years. I didn't know it when it, when it was written in my Bible, but D.L. Moody, when he used to make converts, would take the front leaf of their Bible, and he would always write this in it. And so some of you maybe have this kind of in the front cover of your Bible. But he would say this. He'd say, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. There is a license or permission that gets whispered into our ear, um, but if we choose not to listen to it, if we choose to read Scripture, choose to engage our relationship with God, choose to grow that way, um, those words will keep us from sin, remind us that goodness comes on the back end of obedience, not through disobedience. So let's pray, and we've got a couple of worship songs uh, for the end of the service here, and I just would ask you to search your hearts today that do we realize that the heart of this whole thing is being with God, which means being holy as he is holy. Father, we do commit this to you. We commit our lives to you. We commit our actions to you. There are temptations. There are desires. There are uh, difficult situations with the culture around us. And we just pray in a frank, matter-of-fact way that you would somehow spotlight all that and give us the strength we need to, to just march right into that with a desire to please only you and not to just syncretize our actions and our desires and, and our lifestyle with what's around us. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.